the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Weekday evenings on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. It's 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. Host Daryl Wood brings you the day's news and trending topics as only he can with a unique blend of conservative opinion, constitutionalism, and thought-provoking analysis. Join the conversation. 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood. A daily look at the news in a way you won't hear anywhere else. Tune in to 6 o'clock talk with Daryl Wood on FM 101.5 and AM 1400, The Patriot. Or stream at PatriotDetroit.com. You are in, in what part of the country? <laughs> Southwest Colorado. Wonderful. How are you picking us up? Oh, I stream you guys on my uh, iPhone every day. Fantastic. Um, I, I am a resident of Sterling Heights, but uh, I frequently come to Southwest Colorado. I am just thrilled to be hearing from you out there in Colorado. Continue to listen, tune in again, and call at your earliest convenience. Godspeed. Run to Win with Daryl Wood, Monday through Friday at 4 p.m. on Faith Talk Detroit. Welcome to the Jewish Hour. I'm your host, Herschel Finney. We've got a really interesting show for you today. In this half hour of the show, we will be featuring an interview with Mr. Sean E. Sean, who spent, who's a Michigan native, spent time volunteering in Israel. Second half of the hour, we'll be featuring some insights into the portion of the week, which is Bashalach, can be found in the book of Exodus chapter 14 and following really good bible stuff going on over there and we've got music all over the place we've got a dynamic hasidic story so let's go right to mr sean e sean Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. We have online Sean E. Sean, who is a Detroiter, just came back from a stint of volunteering in Israel, helping out over there. How are you today, Sean? Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. Good to hear. Good to hear. Okay. So you picked yourself up, left the comforts of your home, and traveled seven time zones to go <laughs> help out, not to be a tourist, but to go actually like work, volunteer, and do stuff in Israel. What was what was your impetus, Sean? Uh, I was uh, kind of inspired by the story of Leonard Cohen that I'd learned in the past year. Uh, back 50 years ago when the Yom Kippur War happened, he was a... Uh, in Greece, and uh, heard that there was a labor shortage, and he popped over to the country of Israel just to, you know, pitch in and use his two hands. Okay, 
So, uh, did you feel like uh, writing any tunes? Like, uh, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you weren't inspired to like start singing like this. No, I'm just joking. But okay, only in my head and my heart. Okay, so but that's that's very commendable. I mean, you just but you left the comforts of your home and Mm -hmm. and you went to go work. Okay, so when you got there. What did you find? Uh, well, I was originally supposed to go with a program that uh, canceled on me shortly before my flights. And uh, I talked with my family over there and we decided I'd go anyway. And they'd reach out and we'd figure out uh, something different and find what we could. So when I got there, I, I first went to my family's and uh, spent a Shabbat weekend with them. And by the end of that, we had a couple things lined up. So I... Uh, <laughs> I, I found a country uh, uh, very much in need and uh, pretty surprised whenever I would tell people uh, why I was there. Um, you know, the fact that someone from outside would want to come and, and help uh, during a time like that. Okay. So the, the general attitude, so how long, how long ago, or when did you arrive in Israel? What was the date that you arrived in Israel? Uh, it was around December uh, 18th. December 18th. So that's basically two months after October 7th. Yeah. So what kind of, what kind of mood were people in? What was the general attitude of what was going on in the country? Uh, From the people that I met and interacted with, um, they're still going about the normal rounds of their lives, but everyone's um, moving with a bit of a state of shock from from everything that's happened and everything that's still ongoing now, uh, adapting as best they can just to you know get through life and do the normal things that they have to do. Uh, a lot of things are pretty normal. You know, people go out to eat, people get together, uh, you know, people light Shabbat candles with their family and friends and neighbors. But uh, there's this undertone of just not quite knowing um what what to do other than just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Okay. Did you feel like you were in a country that was in the middle of a war? For the most part, no. But I, I think Israel is kind of unique in that way. Go ahead. Explain. What do you mean? Uh, well, there's been so many wars over the years, and Israel also has a you know mandatory um, military service for everyone. So... I think they're more accustomed to if a war breaks out, if an invasion happens, if people have to be called up to service, uh, to the, the armed services. And um, it's it's not like it's a, a completely foreign, abstract concept that suddenly they're dealing with. Uh, there's people of you know different generations, the younger generations. This is more new to compared to the older generations. But it's, uh, it's a pretty socialized thing to... Uh, uh, to be prepared for in various ways. Okay, so where where whereabouts were you located? You could say the uh, in the northern part, in the central part, in the southern part. Oh, uh, yes. I uh, most of my time uh, was spent in the northern part between the Galilee and the Golan Heights, and then the remainder of my time was in the center of the country. Okay, so people come to volunteer, and I've heard about. Um, I, I had a. F- friend whose older brother went to volunteer in the um, during the Yom Kippur war and they had him like 
doing laundry and pairing socks. And it was just like, <laughs> he, he, he wasn't very happy about it. He wanted to be like out there and like, you know, making a difference. But he said, listen, you know, we need socks. You know, so yeah. what, what kind of stuff were you engaged in, Sean? Uh, I mostly got around to working uh, in agriculture and on farms. Uh, I spent a little time at a tomato farm, uh, on a spring farm, uh, a seed and sprout farm, uh, also at a food uh, distribution center, sorting and packing uh, food for uh, families in need as well as displaced families. And I also was able to spend a little time in the house of a uh, Drews family uh, making food for, uh, for both displaced families and for the troops. Okay. Um, that's, that's pretty cool. So were you doing like sun up to sundown type stuff? It was like, uh, no, no stuff. Um, manual labor. Yes. But, uh, not, uh, not all hours of the day. I didn't break my back. Uh, when I was on the, um, the seed and sprout farm, for instance, uh, where they also had some goats and a horse and, uh, and a couple donkeys and various things to do. Uh, they, uh, they provided lodging and the expectation was to be, to be doing five hours of work a day. And then the rest of your time was your time, whatever you wanted to do. If you wanted to continue working on stuff that you were working on earlier or just, uh, get about the mashav that it was on. Okay. So you weren't exactly a migrant worker per se. That's correct. Okay. So, so what kind of stuff did you do? Elf, I mean, it's not really, there's a war going on. Could you do like the Tiulim, the sightseeing stuff? Um, I would say yes and no. Um, when I was on a Mashav in the Golan Heights, there was an ancient uh, synagogue nearby walking distance. And a couple of my cousins came to, to volunteer one of the days that I was working there. And uh, when we had uh, free time after the work was done, we were heading towards the uh, towards the ancient synagogue, but it was closed. Uh, normally it's open, but uh, we were told because of the lack of tourists, uh, they weren't able to staff it. So it, uh, it just remained closed for the time being. But uh, I was also able to make a, a couple day trips of my own to, uh, to Jerusalem to visit the Kotel and uh, to Tel Aviv to, to visit a friend here and there and uh, uh, a number of uh, family visits with uh, cousins of mine who I did not anticipate being able to meet up with and, and see in between working. I mean, it just amazes me. I mean, Israel's not very big, and putting it in times, I could do it in New Jersey really easy if because I'm from New Jersey. It would be <laughs> like saying there's a war going on in Camden, and you were like traveling around like Newark and Bergenfield, and everybody would understand it. <laughs> but to put it in Michigan terms, so, so there's a war going on in Monroe, and you're in Detroit. And it's yeah. like life life is going on. It's just like life is normal. So Pretty much, yeah. It's a, it's a pretty incredible thing. Okay, so... Um, what impressed you the most about this whole this whole deal going over to Israel at this time, Sean? You, Sean. Uh, the thing that uh, impressed me the most is the the people that I know or the people that I met that um, uh, were called up from the reserves for the IDF and the uh, the really difficult jobs that they're doing, um, being put in positions where they have to actively engage in what they're doing and actively make decisions or choose to, to not act, which is its own decision, where um, they have to face the reality that they're 
will probably be consequences no matter what they do. And they still have to make those choices anyway and be in those difficult places. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, our guest today is Sean E. Sean. He's a Michigan native who spent time uh, pretty much close to a month, right, in Israel volunteering. And, yeah, yeah. And were you, like, basically volunteering at your own expense? Yes. Yeah, uh, since the program that I was supposed to go with was unfortunately uh, unfortunately canceled on me, uh, I was going wherever I could, uh, doing whatever whatever I could find. Uh, lodging was involved in exchange. That, that worked well, but otherwise I... Um, I have enough cousins who uh, were able to give me uh, give me lodging at their places to then be able to use public transport and get wherever I needed to go and whatever that you know I arranged to to work with. Mm-hmm. Okay, so tell, tell us about your cousin. You had cousins that you've never met, right? Oh yeah, uh, third cousins of mine. Uh, I have a first cousin who lives there and a second cousin who lives there with their adult children. And um, there was a family gathering that uh, that they took me to, and I met uh, near about 23rd cousins of mine who I only knew from the family tree or knew from stories, but had never met in person before. We ended up exchanging numbers, me with a lot of them, and staying in touch and uh, getting to see that the family is not just this big tree, but it's it's uh, it really is just so much bigger, but also much more close because of Israel than, uh, than I'd, you know, previously experienced. Mm-hmm. What was, what was the most common question that your cousins asked you as coming from America? <laughs> uh, the most common question my cousins asked me, which is the same that any, anyone in is in Israel or any Israeli asked me, they asked me, um, is the anti-Semitism in the U S and outside of Israel, um, how bad is it? Is it as bad as some of the pictures and videos and media make it look like? What's what's the reality? What's your experience? What's it like in Detroit where you're coming from? That was the thing they asked me the most. That's very interesting because, you know, it's just like the media always, ha- the media's job is to sell. And so therefore they put on like mm-hmm. a, the worst possible scenario. And so, yes, it looks like the Wild West on TV in Israel, what's going on in America. <laughs> So um, that's that's really pretty amazing. So Israel is a country which has points of view from the full end of the spectrum to the other end of the spectrum. Oh yeah. Did you, did you did you come across people that were basically saying like one one end is is we should go in and we should just like clear out Gaza and the other one is is that we should have to make peace right away immediately and we have to make restitution all of a sudden. What did what was what did what kind of opinions did you come across and how did you deal with them? Uh, from the people that that I met, um it was mostly across the board very similar sentiments that um uh, Hamas needs to be stopped. Hostages need to be released. Uh, we need to, you know, save or have re- have as many as possible uh, released that that we can get, and we need to stop the organization from sending rockets. Uh, people didn't get uh, too much into uh, their opinions of what happens afterward, as much as the most immediate. You know, we need this situation to end. Um, I only came across maybe one person who um, who shared an opinion that uh, we need to go into Gaza and take it back and make it part of Israel. 
Uh, and um, they weren't a person I really knew very well. They were someone that I met on the street and got to talking to. But it was interesting to hear a different opinion than the overwhelming majority of opinions where people, they want Gaza to be free, but they don't want to be in danger. And this balancing act where uh, what decisions can we make to facilitate uh, the things that are beneficial for you know, most people while also not being dangerous <laughs> for as many people as possible. Mm-hmm. Would you say the people you talked to were in, were approved of the way the situation is being handled in dealing with Hamas? I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I can't say I got too deep into conversations as far as that goes, but uh, across the board, they all agreed that uh, they need to be fought, they need to be stopped. And they can't be allowed to uh, to continue to have the the freedom to do the things that they've done and the things that they say they will continue to do. Okay, understood. Okay, so now the people um, there's there's a bit of a uh, it's, it's not a, I wouldn't call it big enough to be a movement. It's sort of like a crawl of people going to volunteer in Israel and various different sundry programs and whatnot. What advice would you have for people who want to go to volunteer in Israel and like preparing yourself or or making accommodations, arrangements, this type of stuff, Sean E. Sean? Well, the biggest recommendation I can give is there's a number of resources people can uh, can search for, and I've since I've um, finished my trip. Uh, several friends and even friends of friends who I've never met um, have reached out to me uh, for advice and you know, I have a list of all the things that I did and all the things that I tried and the, the, the networks of information that I'm happy to give out. But uh, the most prominent thing I could say is if someone can just go and get their feet on the ground, uh, if they have family they can stay with, friends, anyone just to get them to arrive and get settled uh, much more happens once you're there. Uh, the, the way my uh, uh, one of my cousins, my second cousins, described it, they said it's 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 a can-do place that's just a big grapevine. One person reaches out to another, whether it's you know a friend or neighbor, and they reach out to another, and suddenly there's this chain, and someone's like, "I've never met you before. I've only just heard of you, but come, 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 come help. If you want to do this, please, please. What can I do to help?" Okay, cool. So it's a very open, inviting. Uh atmosphere and you would recommend that people if they can get away they should actually go pick themselves up and spend three weeks to a month in in israel do you think you need people need three months to a three weeks to a month do you think a, a week is worth it it's a lot of schlepping to go for a week uh if someone can can tolerate the travel and whatever expense they might incur i think a week or two weeks is plenty of time to to make enough little differences that will collectively add up to all the other little differences that really make a big difference for everyone overall. Okay, cool. Now I'm going to change the subject totally. You're on your way to Australia. And one of the things that you're going to be doing in Australia is you're going to be checking out a Torah scroll that your grandfather or maybe great-grandfather smuggled out of Germany before the Holocaust. Tell us about that. Yes, it was my my great-grandfather and great-grandmother, along with their three children, the oldest one being my grandmother, who we called Oma, because they came from Germany. And um, they left Munich, and there was a local, um, either association or organization, 
uh, that asked them uh, when they were leaving Germany in 1938, just before, a little bit before Kristallnacht, can you please take this Torah with you? So they <laughs> they smuggled it out and got it to Australia, which is the country that they were able to arrange papers to get to. And it is one of the Torahs that survived the uh, the Holocaust. It's sitting in a local synagogue uh, in Caulfield or the, the areas around Caulfield in Melbourne. And um, both me and my mom, who are going on this trip to visit the family there, have a special trip arranged to be able to go to the synagogue and actually see the see the Torah with our own eyes, uh, read from it if we want to. And the uh, the two handles on it have my great grandparents' names engraved in them, and the family calls it the family Torah. <laughs> okay, interesting. Is the Torah still in use, or it's sort of like just? Put off to the side, and it's like oh, almost, that's an almost, interesting it's question. It's almost a hundred years old, but a Torah does have a shelf life. Um, you could use it. <laughs> there are Torahs that are in use that are that are closer to two hundred years old. Well, here's the interesting fact about that, and uh, I have an uncle who is the family genealogist, and he does a lot of family history stuff. So he's been able to trace not exactly the year it was made, but the general range. It could be as old as two hundred years. Um, going back to uh, Feschenbach, Germany, where my great-grandfather was born. And uh, the Torah was used by the majority of my cousins who came of age in Australia for their bar and bat mitzvahs. And the youngest ones, who are now adults, they weren't able to use it because it had started to fade. Uh And what my my great-aunts and my great-uncle did was, at their expense, they sent it to Jerusalem to be rescribed, which it has since uh, been and, and returned to uh, returned to Australia, so it's back to being a functional tour again. Okay, so if you're there like on a Monday or a Thursday, you should ask them to use it in the service in the morning, and then you can get called up and you can say a blessing on it and, and get what's called an aliyah. You should definitely do that, Shawnee Sean. It's um, an amazing I like thing. that idea. And, okay. and my my Hebrew is much more refreshed after this trip, so I could I could just barely muddle along reading it at this point. Okay. <laughs> that's why they have a balka or somebody who reads the Torah and you just kinda of like follow along with them. Okay, that's gonna wrap it up. It's been wonderful. I'm really inspired. Our guest today is Michigan native Sean Ishan, who has spent time um, close to a month in Israel volunteering and making sure that the gross domestic product doesn't become gross, if you get the pun, and uh, helping out and doing wonderful things. And wish you uh, lots of success, and you should do more wonderful things, Shawnee Sean. Well, thank you, Rabbi. I appreciate it. Okay, take care. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Jewish Hour. Why go to a hospital to get healthy? At Encompass Healthcare, you get the -the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. 
Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurances accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Herschel Finman here. You are listening to the Jewish Hour. I thought, hope you find that to be inspiring. Maybe if you're not going to pick yourself up and move to someplace that needs your help, maybe you'll help here someplace. It's always a good thing. For your listening pleasure up next, this is a new group out of Argentina. The group is called Tiemble El Mohel, and they're doing a Benny Friedman mashup. Yeah, so 
We all know there's an opiate epidemic, but Advanced Rapid Detox has a solution for people addicted to pain pills, heroin, and dependent on Suboxone and Methadone. Advanced Rapid Detox performs detox under sedation in the hospital. Patients sleep through withdrawals and wake up without cravings. Dr. Julia Aronoff and the staff at Advanced Rapid Detox help people restore their lives and the lives of their families. Addiction affects everyone, even in the Jewish community, and Advanced Rapid Detox is there to help. Call 800-603-1813. That's 800-603-1813. Or visit them online at www.advancedrapiddetox.com. Herschel Finman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. Up next is Klezmer Music. The group is called Emetuki. They're a new group. I'm not exactly sure where they're from. Could be America, could be Canada. I think they're English-speaking, judging by their accents when they're singing the uh, the Hebrew. But accents could be misleading anyway. They're doing a klezmer mash. Sounds like a bunch of guys just having a bunch of fun. Let's. I hope you're having fun too.
Tuki up next, classic schlockrock. Am Yisrael Chai, the Jewish people live. Assurance of quality and excellence in kosher? Look for the Michigan K on the label. What's it look like? The Lower Peninsula of Michigan with a K. 
It's the symbol of the Michigan Kosher Supervisors. Go to their website, mycosup.com. That's M-I for Michigan, K-O for kosher, and S-U-P for supervisors, mycosup.com, and find this month's featured products. You'll find Michigan K products wherever fine food is sold, especially at Natural Food Patch on West Nine Mile Road in Ferndale. Herschel Thinman, here you are listening to the Jewish Hour. This week we'll be reading the portion of Bishalach. It's also known as Shabbos Shira because the song by the sea is in it. There is a custom, which we're not going to go into great detail about it. We've done this in the past, of putting out bird food on this uh, Shabbos as the birds helped with the uh they were they were part of the whole scenario over there and there's also it says that the birds ate the manna that was put out on shabbos so we put out bird food and it's also customary on this shabbos to eat buckwheat kasha okay that's a custom which was originated in the 1500s and I'm not really sure exactly why, but I think it's there's always some kind of like festivity involved with like serving buckwheat. And indeed, this week at Jewish Ferndale, we'll be doing Shabbos and we will be featuring buckwheat and we will be putting out bird food. Thursday, Wednesday night is Tubishvat. Tubishvat is known as Jewish Arbor Day. We call it Rosh Hashanah Shel Ilanot, the New Year of the Trees. Which, kind of interesting, because if you look outside, uh, trees aren't doing a whole lot, but that's exactly the deal. It's the new year. It's when things are just starting right now, even though it's the middle of January. We are not hitting spring for another middle of January, February, March. Not, we're not hitting spring for another two months. And it's not going to get warm in Michigan for another three months. But still, the trees are suddenly doing something. Because what happens? After the fall, all the leaves are gone. The tree doesn't have to use its energy to support the life of the leaves anymore because they're gone. This, the tree goes into a state of dormancy, which means that the sap goes into the roots it's around this time of year, believe it or not, that the sap starts moving up so that when the time the spring comes around and it's time to start budding and putting out leaves, so the sap, which is the life-giving force in the tree, is already in the limbs. That's why anybody who knows anything about maple syrup knows that maple syrup collecting time is the beginning of March, even in Vermont, and and even in Michigan, where in the beginning of March, it's not exactly springtime. It's cold because the sap at that point is running. We've toyed with the idea on Jewish Ferndale since we have not one, not two, but four sugar maples on our property. And we were told that we could collect 400 gallons of sap, and from 400 gallons of sap, you get one gallon of maple syrup. And what do you have to do is you have to build a slow fire, and you have to slowly evaporate 400 gallons so that it 
it boils out to one gallon. It takes days. So we've never actually, aside from tapping 400 gallons of stuff, so it's like, who's going to stand there for four days and watch this stuff, make sure it doesn't burn? Um, so we've never actually done it. We've never commissioned anybody to do it. And uh, you know anybody who would like to uh, to make maple syrup, have them contact us. You can contact me at rabbifinman.com or jewishferndale.com. But that's neither here nor there. Why do we why, why do we mention this? Okay, there is not a whole lot of celebrating done. It is customary to eat tree fruit on Wednesday night, Thursday. And if you could find some sort of tree fruit that you haven't had in a while, let's say you haven't had a guava or breadfruit or a jackfruit. Jackfruit's really weird. That's like, you know, a 30-pound melon-type thing that grows on a tree. Amazing. So then you could have it and you could say, Asha thanking God for letting you reach this time. Why is it, though, that we're marking it is it has to do with the tithing of the trees and these type of things. You know, if when is the calendar? It's a fiscal year for tree fruit. Okay, so then you have olives and wine and these things. When do they have to be tithed? We don't live in Israel, so we don't have to worry about such things. It says in the Torah, in the portion of Kitetze, Ki Adam eats hasadahu, because man is like a field, a tree in the field. People have roots, just like trees have roots. We put down roots, we stay put. When we moved to Detroit, we didn't know how long we were going to be, but thank God we've been in Detroit for 35 years. I think we've put down roots for my kids, even the ones who are older than 35 years old. The only house, the only address that they know is the house that we live in. We didn't move around every every once in a while. We moved to a different house. This is this is the house that we live in. This is the house that they know. We have solid roots. And you have you have offshoots, you have branches. You know, you you're you're you spread out, you might say. And you have fruit. Some people say the fruit, you know, be fruitful and multiply. You have kids, but your deeds, your good deeds are also those things that you're bearing fruit. So there's a question. A holiday falls out in the portion of the week. So the Shalah HaKadosh, a 1600s, 17th century commentator, says that the holiday always has a connection to the portion. We kind of indicated before, we gave a little hint. After the Jews crossed through the sea, which is the big highlight of this week's portion, so they ran out of food. And they went to Moses and said, we're going to starve. We should have been better. We stayed in Egypt. Oh, what was us? And, and Moses says, shut, shut up. You got this stuff. It's going to be, you'll have Fred. Don't worry. You're going to have food. And they woke up the next morning. And they said, what, what is this? And what is this? In Hebrew, is in, translated into English as manna. So they got the manna. The manna was a very interesting thing. Is it tasted like whatever people wanted? What's the deal with fruit, especially tree fruit? Is why do people eat tree fruit? Why do people eat fruit? I remember my grandmother, my bubby of blessed memory. If you walked into her house, you had to eat. 
it was like it was it was like a cardinal rule are you hungry no i'm not hungry no thank you so here take a piece of fruit okay because you didn't eat fruit because you were hungry you ate fruit because it tastes good can't fill up on fruit i mean you could try but so the the idea is is that god provides for us not just our basic needs but there's also time and, and place for luxury as well things to be enjoyed and the manna was an enjoyable thing what's that got to do with us The manna was a test. You need to hear God saying to Moses, this is a test. I'm not going to say it's my God imitation. This is a test. Because every night when the Jews went to sleep, there was no food in the house. It was like, we can get fit tomorrow. Uh Uh-oh, we have no food in our house. We're going to starve. And they they didn't, it's amazing. Forty years every day, they didn't catch on that there's a pattern. Oh, by the way, you know, you have nothing to worry about because tomorrow there's going to be manna. So here it was this manna that not only was it a need, but it was also a luxury. They didn't have, most people didn't have to work for it. I mean, some people had to go out and they had to go and collect it and cook it and that stuff. But those, you know, majority people, it was like right there. They brought it home. They ate it. Okay. It was like uh, I'm 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 thinking it was kind of akin to like eating a babka, is what uh, what I'm thinking. Who doesn't like a good babka? So the Almighty does take care, and the Almighty not only does He provide our needs, but He provides more than our needs. And we, what do we have to do? We have to appreciate it. That's really you can look and you can, at the end of the day, a person should look back and say, what good thing happened today what what is it that i can say baruch hashem thank god thank god we're coming up to the end of the hour and we have to take a quick commercial break we have an amazing hasidic story really suspenseful don't go away you're listening to the jewish hour why go to a hospital get healthy at Encompass Healthcare, you get the state-of-the-art wound care like in a hospital. The same medicines, the same everything without being in a hospital. Why put yourself at risk of getting a hospital-borne infection? Did you know that last year, one in six people died in America because of infections they got in hospitals? Encompass Healthcare is an outpatient facility. That means you get your wound care treatment and then go home. There are no wait times at Encompass Healthcare like in ERs. Healthcare is personal and works better, faster, and easier. Encompass Healthcare provides a state-of-the-art outpatient facility close to where you live. Call 248-624-9800. That's 624-9800. Auto accident, workman's comp, and most insurance is accepted. Encompass Healthcare's goal is to get you healthy with as little disturbance to your daily activities. Call 248-624-9800. Hey, Schultzman here. You're listening to the Jewish Hour. Want to get in touch with me? Easiest way, RabbiFinman.com. Right there on the homepage, contact me. I'll contact you. It's all good. You'll also have archived editions of the radio show, which is really a major component of RabbiFinman.com. 
I, I see in, in monitoring the site that that's one of the more popular pages is the archives and people looking back when they hear that they first hear about the show. So then they go back and they listen and uh, there's some pretty amazing interviews back located throughout the show. There's also the very important donations page. Baruch Hashem, we are current. We just have to finish paying off January. This is the end of the month. We have one more week, I believe, in January. And today's the 21st. Yes, so to, you know, uh, when I'm recording. So uh, we have one more week. And if it gets paid before the end of next week, I'm not going to do a, a even one week. You know, you get a longer story. Wouldn't that be better? So go to RabbiFinman.com, go to the donations page, and uh, click on a donation. Jewish Ferndale is having a raffle, and that's our yearly mega raffle. For that, you have to go to JewishFerndale.com, and uh, you can participate that way. All the details are there. First prize is $100,000. So go to JewishFerndale.com, all one word. Okay, story. The year is 1927. The place, Kutsais, Georgia. That's Georgia, the f- former Soviet Republic, which at that time was a Soviet Republic. Not Georgia were like Atlanta. No, different Georgia. It's also known as Georgina. It was, things were a little easier in Georgia. It was kind of like further away from the the communists, whatever they didn't, but... It was still a Soviet satellite state, part of the the Union, and the law was the law. And there was a law that there was no such thing as a a Jewish day school. You could not teach children Torah. The idea being that if you don't teach kids Torah, well, in the next year, you're not going to have any Judaism, which basically is what happened in Russia. You had Jews that were... The only reason when they came out in like 1978, the only reason they knew they were Jewish is because it was stamped in their passport. Baruch Hashem, the, the, the Russians did that. So the um, so there was a there was one person, Lubavitcher Chassid, whose name is not mentioned, and throughout the story, his name is not mentioned. Throughout the years, it was never mentioned. I think it had to do something with like protecting his family in Georgia. So he had an underground school. One day he got arrested, picked up by the, what was that point known as the NKVD, which is the the predecessor to the secret police that they had. They they had different names, NKVD, GPU, they had all different things. They were all, all bad. And they interrogated him and interrogated and interrogated him. And they finally said, but we watch you and we see that you get paid. You go into people's houses and they pay you. You must be learning with their children. And he said very innocently, just he made like himself like he didn't know from nothing. They have children who are sick. And I go and I remove the evil eye. And the, the interrogator laughed. And he said, you expect me to believe that? He said, that's what I do. I take away the evil eye. And they pay me. I need the interrogator, this doesn't work. He says, what do I care if it works? If they're going to pay me for it, I'll do it. He said, no, that's not an honest living. You're cheating the people. 
you need to get a proper job. And he started interrogating him again. We don't think you're chilling. But finally they said, okay, you know what? Go outside and we'll decide what we're going to do with you. So he very innocently walked out the, the door, understanding that he's supposed to go outside the door. And he just kept on walking until he came to the front door. And he came to the front door. The guard said, where are you going? And he said, they told me I could go. And he walked with the guard thinking with such simplicity that they, you know, but he just walks out of an inter- interrogation. He let him go. Uh, better part of valor, what did he do? He didn't go home because, you know, he got arrested right away. So um, he hung around uh, Tzvisli for a couple of days and then picked himself up and went to Rostov, where the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe was, was living. And he was told that the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe had been exiled for his activities in anti-communist uh, manner. He was also running schools and et cetera, and had been exiled to Kastrama, Kazakhstan, a 30-hour train ride away. The guy picked himself up. And he moved to Kastrama, and he went to Kastrama. He showed up in Kastrama. They didn't know what to do with him. Well, what are you doing? What do you know? You're a spy. What are you here for? He says, he says I have to see the Rebbe. It's life and death. Okay, he finally convinced them that he needed a private audience with the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which is one of the reasons why the Lubavitcher Rebbe was exiled to Kazakhstan. So he explained to the, to the previous Rebbe what had happened, and he asked well, for a piece of advice. He said, go to Moscow. You'll find a person by the name of Baruch Shalom in Moscow. No last name, just Baruch Shalom. And Baruch Shalom has connections. You'll get to, he knows people that have work permits or business permits where they can buy wholesale and sell retail. And then you'll go to a person, you'll borrow some money, and Baruch Shalom knows the connection. You'll buy some, you'll take the money and you'll go to the business and you'll buy fabric and you'll start selling the fabric at wholesale for, 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 at retail. And so then you'll go immediately, when, as soon as you get back to Tzibisli in Georgia, you'll go immediately back to the, to the secret police headquarters and tell them that you now have a proper job. Okay? So he did the, all of this. So he comes into Moscow. It's like a 30-hour ride from, uh, by train. And he gets off, and he sees the train is crowded. There's secret police all over the place. He gets into a, a train, and uh, he's looking at this guy sitting next to him. And this guy's looking at him. So the other guy says to him, Where are you coming from? So he said, I'm coming from Kostroma. The guy couldn't believe it. He says, you're coming from the Rebbe. So the, this chassid from Georgia says, what's your name? He says, my name is Baruch Shalom. He said, Baruch Shalom, da, da. yeah. So here's the guy he's supposed to meet. He's sitting next to him on the train. How, he said, that Baruch Shalom said, with, when it comes to the Rebbe, wonders are no wonders. Set him up in business, as he, the previous Rebbe said. And he went back to Kastrama. He went back to Tbilisi, And he walked, did something unheard of. He walked into the secret police headquarters. Where he's immediately, the guard who was standing at the door immediately recognized him, took him to the interrogator and said, the guy came back. 
Okay, so he's, uh, the, the interrogator said, well, how did you leave? He said, you told me I could go. You told me I needed to get another profession. So he says, where were you? So he showed him all the documents, how he had gotten a permit to now to open up this business. And here was the receipts for the stuff that he had bought. And he's now going into business. He's not going to be doing this, removing the evil eye from children anymore. So he said, that's wonderful. He said, but it's really better that you you become a uh, a worker. Okay? So he let him go. And he said, and you told him, had you not come back, we would have given you 10 years in Siberia. That's going to do it. We hope you enjoyed the show. We hope uh, Shawnee Sean was able to inspire you a little bit. We hope he had a chance to entertain you a little bit. We hope he had a chance to educate you a little bit. We hope you have a good week. Remember, on Wednesday night, Thursday, to eat some kind of fruit. We'll see you back again next week. Take care. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.